My name is William Corliss and this is the Workplace Podcast. Brought to you in association with Yellowwood, providers of executive coaching, corporate training and facilitation. Your external learning and development partner. Each week we focus on a different aspect of the workplace. We hear from guest speakers who will be subject matter experts, who I believe are incredibly talented at what they do. These experts will give you a different perspective and insight to work life, with the aim of empowering you to take a different path to success in all aspects of work life. These perspectives will include career and personal success, leadership, high performance teams, and creating a better work life culture in your organization. Yellowwood, take a different path to success with your career, team, and organization. Welcome to the Workplace Podcast. Our topic today is in service of the public good, leadership insights from Vice Admiral Mark Mellish, who has 48 years service as an officer in the Irish Defence Forces. He is the first naval officer in the Irish state to serve as Chief of Staff, having previously served as Deputy Chief of Staff and Chief of the Navy. He commenced his military career as an army reservist before being selected for a naval cadetship in the Permanent Defence Forces. For over two decades, he has been a change leader, contributing to ongoing transformation and positioning the Irish forces in a postmodern setting. Holder of a doctorate in political science and a master's in government and public policy, Admiral Mellet has been a keen has a keen interest in research with a focus on European security, innovation, diversity, and value-based leadership. He has been a member of the European Security Research Innovation Forum and has completed the EU Senior Mission Leaders course. He has also been a visiting professor abroad in Liverpool Hope University and is currently an adjunct professor of law at the University College Cork. He was the distinguished graduate of the senior command and staff courses he attended at the Irish Military College, the US Naval War College, and the UK Royal Navy College Greenwich. A former naval diving officer, he continues to maintain a high level of fitness and is a daily runner, and he's married to Liz and has four adult children. So welcome to the Workplace Podcast. William, listen, it's great to be here with you. And I, you know what, I better correct something before we get out running. 43 years as a commissioned officer, five years with my cadetship and three years as a reservist, because they'll all be doing the sums and saying it's impossible to be 48 years as a commissioned officer in the Defence Forces. So it's a privilege to be here with you. Yeah, thank you so much. And I have some wonderful memories of you. Uh, I first met you at a management conference. And when I met you first, I just couldn't wait to sit down and have a coffee with you. Unfortunately, that was three or four years ago now. This is the wonderful opportunity the podcast has presented. And again, my interest in the Defence Forces comes from one of history, which I told you before, my grandfather was in the uh, Battle of Tor Makiti. Um, and also I did some work with the United Nations uh, Training School there in, in the Curra. So I was, I was quite uh, interested in that through my own work and the, the family connection. And this is today is really about getting those leadership insights uh, from you. And again, it's it's great to have you uh, on board here. So in terms of those leadership insights, there's lots going on at the moment that people may not realize from a leadership point of view, 
what your undertakings are. So before we go into that, because we have COVID and cybersecurity and all these various different things that Defence Forces would be involved in, is can you tell me a little bit about your leadership style and you know what are the kind of key learnings you've you've uh, I suppose been equipped with over the last couple of years? Well, I suppose um, I'm just touched by your remark with regards to your grandfather and Tom McKady because you you know I'm from Mayo and and my grandmother yeah. and my granduncles were very much involved in the cause back at the War of Independence and they would yeah. have been involved in many of the. Um, events at that time I, and I, I did a piece for the Mayo News recently where I, I, I just told that story and I didn't realize when I was growing up as a youngster what my grandmother who was a, a, an activist would come in the man when she spoke about you know moving uh, weapons uh, to the uh, active service units the flying column you know moving hand grenades from under the bed her house being rolled over by the black and tans back then I just thought these were stories but actually, you know, now at this pivotal point in history, 100 years later, when I look at the sacrifices that your grandfather made, they were mm. the individuals that actually guaranteed the freedom of the citizens of this state. They're the individuals that assured the actual sovereignty of this state. And when all is said and done, that's what our defence forces is about today. We are the bedrock of that sovereignty, part of the framework for the institutions of our civil society where people are free, where the institutions of state function, and where the vulnerable are protected. And, and that's a point, I think, sometimes in terms of advocacy, that people forget that the right to live in a civil society is a human right of every mm. man, woman, and child. And sometimes we take it for granted. We're in the top 7% of the actual most peaceful countries in the world here in Ireland. So when, when you come back to my, what is my leadership style? My leadership style is sometimes just telling stories, trying to connect the dots to actually put a perspective there so that there can be an understanding and a wisdom as to what we have and why we shouldn't just take it for granted. That we need to think deeply about the privileges we have on an island on the Western frontier of Europe that has a resonance throughout the world, from the Americas to Asia, from uh, Africa to the small island states. Ireland has a credibility and recently reflected in the fact that we took up a seat in the UN Security Council. So leadership for me is, is hybrid. It, it's, it's, it's collegiate and it's chairman-like in my current role. But there have been times where I have been almost dictatorial. And I remember mm. one occasion where I nearly lost a ship and uh, we were in a storm and we were moving towards the rocks. Uh, we had no power. And uh, it was a matter of minutes before we were on the rocks. That wasn't a place to be a chairman. That yeah. was a place for clear, direct orders. And I, 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 I will never forget that moment uh, when I was given the instructions and given the orders. And I almost felt like I rose before, above, you know, the team. We were working on the bridge of a ship. There was a complete blackout outside in terms of the storm. Uh, you could barely see. And the navigator was counting down 300 yards, 200 yards, 100 yards. He came to the point where he said, we have no water. And I was still calling out instructions to get the ship going. 
And as he said, we have no water, the engine started. And it still took seconds after that for us to clutch in and to drive out of that dangerous position. But during that, that moment, I was a different leader than I am, you know, on, on most of my time, which is a collegiate trying to bring different perspectives into the rook to get mm. a com- common point of truth, to have a common vision and a, a common strategy to move in that direction. Uh, and so, you know, people often say, as you just said there, what kind of a leader are you? I think in the world of today, you have to be capable of being a hybrid leader, being able to adapt your style to the circumstances you find yourself in. And whether it's a crisis in which there are particular talents required then, or whether it's a, a, a piece that's more in the in the change management space, whereby you're you're creating a vision, you're shifting a culture, you know, the style has to adjust to the circumstances you find yourself in. And that's what attracted me to, you know, talking to a military leader then, because there's so many different elements uh, here. To, there's the nuances in terms of the change management, but then there can be like a more directive leadership style depending on the context. So it's very much knowing that situal, situational awareness and it's that having that emotional intelligence then to say, okay, now is the time to uh, adapt a different style or utilize a different uh, skill set. So again, in terms of that, what are the kind of key learnings there that allowed you to move into that adaptive piece? Because sometimes it's very straightforward. You need, you know, you need to avoid, you know, the the Gosh. ship sinking. You know, and sometimes it's kind of going. How do I move away to be more in terms of execution, in terms of our operator mode, into a more strategic leadership style? Like, what, what advice would you give our listeners there? Well, I think there's a key piece on it. Um, at your pearl, do you display arrogance and mm-hmm. um, get rid of your ego? And and and, and the reason I say that um, is that no matter what you do, you do it with the support of others. Uh, and you know, you you may well feel, oh, I can I can drive through change, but there comes a point sooner or later that if people are not on board. You, you, you might win the battle, but you lose the war. So it's all about being able to bring people with you. And I think one of the strongest strengths of any leader is to be able to, uh, I suppose, have a vulnerability with comfort. And mm. I mean, that sounds a contradiction, but I mean, it's, it's, it's an acknowledgement that none of us has all the answers. And in fact, in the world we're in today, increasingly with a rate of change so fast, that every moment of every day, new technologies and new ways of doing things are, are being created. The reality is that the answers to challenging problems we face are out, outside our immediate circle. And, but, but they're somewhere in our network if we're smart enough to actually create, maintain, and sustain that network. And, and so increasingly, I, I, I make a point that to gain power, you actually have to cede power. You have to be willing to acknowledge that I don't have all the answers. And, and coming back to ego, I always um, reiterate a point that, that Einstein is credited with saying that ego equals one over knowledge. That is, the more you know, the smaller your ego should become. And it, it makes such sense when you when you say it like that. And 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 from that point of view, there is that almost obligation on leaders 
to always have a thirst for knowledge, to be growing more knowledge as much as possible, because that, that allows you then have an understanding in a more sophisticated man, manner of this perspective of others, the, 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 um, the other social systems that are there in terms of the politics, the civil society, uh, other state institutions. It also allows you to, to look at other, um, I suppose, systems such as enterprise, what's happening in the world of economics. And it allows you change your perspective in terms of strategic ways whereby, you know, traditionally people would have looked at the military as a cost center. Whereas yeah. I'm trying to articulate a language whereby don't look at us as a cost center, look at us as an investment center and with the potential to be a profit center. You know, imagine a, a future whereby end user driven solutions from the military to end user identified problems, working with enterprise and working with the research community is generating jobs and UIP and, and is actually driven, generating revenue and what I'm getting out of it from a military point of view is maybe a new technology that gives me better force protection for the troops we have at present uh, in Mali or for the ships that have to operate in the storms of the West Coast. At the same time, that same technology is generating employment for a cohort of, of, of smart millennials who are hungry for jobs. And at the same time, the state is getting a tax revenue out of that that actually feeds into the economy. Because... What is clear to me over the decades, economic security is inextricably linked with state security. And if you look back to the point of Ireland being in the top 7% of most peaceful countries in the world, one of the, the dividends for that is our attractiveness for foreign direct investment, for others to look and say, do you know what? Ireland is a, is a safe bet for that multi-million or that billion euro investment that we see the Intels and others do. And, and they do it. And they're not short-term investments. You know, when you place that bet, you're saying, I expect this to stay this way for the next decade, two decades or so. So, you know, while the Defence Forces might be seen as a, a relatively small institution, aside from all of this, actually we're pivotal to the storyboard for Ireland in terms of its, its reputational quality for that type of FDI, foreign direct investment. And likewise, from the point of view of the type of SMEs that generate in the country itself and generate within the state itself. You're shining a very different perspective, I think, from the public's perspective of what the army is, because having, um, I suppose, foreign direct investment and the defence forces and the army and innovation in the same conversation, some people mightn't have joined the dots. Is your perspective on the army that say, listen, this is what we need to do. We need to be more approach. What is your approach? Yeah, well, well, the first principle, and I have, I have 10 principles. We won't get time to go through them now. But the first principle is, is about innovation. It yeah. is about the reality that innovation is a systemic change in mindset that must permeate the entire organization. I ask everybody in the organization when they're going about their business to lift their heads and to ask themselves the question every day, is there a better way to do what I do? And if there's not, then great, keep on doing what you're doing. But, but I want people to be hungry for knowledge, to actually ask challenging questions, to sense and explore for new ideas, new technologies that they can actually seize and exploit. And, and they're, they're being created. And, and you know, innovation is not just about technology. 
It can be about a system or a, it can be about a process. It can be about a partnership. But you know, if, if you're not continually challenging yourself in the context of uh, the way you go about your business, you will not be changing at the rate of pace that's required to keep up with the, the transformational change that's there in society. Like, and I think one of the, the key indicators with regards to, um, I suppose, knowledge generation is the, is the whole issue around data. And data drives the creation of information, which leads to the creation of knowledge uh, and ultimately understanding. And you just think about it, um, you know, five years ago, six years ago, I think there was about five zettabytes of data in the world. Yeah. Today, in 2021, there are about 43 zettabytes of data. And a zettabyte is 10 to the power of 21 bytes. Wow. You know, you couldn't fit it in this room. You know, it's just, <laughs> it's just ginormous and uh, or zettanormous. It's, it's just the rate, and it's all expanding in accordance with Moore's law. So we're creating all of these data that are driving information and all leading to the creation of new knowledge. So it's beyond individual single capacity to stay, to keep pace with that. But if you're, if you really are good in terms of your outreach and the way you create a network around you, there's an increasing chance that you would be able to get the hedge for your challenge and problem somewhere within your network. And, and, and the quick quote for that is the reciprocity that you bring to somebody when they come to you with a problem, that you may well, within your uh, experience, be able to give an answer to somebody else's wicked problem that they're trying to deal with. So that's that's the kind of that's the reason I I I, I kind of have that principle of of uh, innovation. And linked to that, the, the second principle is about collaboration. Like we are, we 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 nobody in in, a, in this world we have at present, where we're physically experiencing the impact of climate breakdown, where we can actually see the loss of biodiversity around us every day. Already today in the news, we're seeing whereby in California, they're worried that already the, the actual indicators of uh, fires being stimulated is happening. And we're not even you know in, into late June yet. And they're all worried in terms of the wine industry and, and smoke pollution in terms of the grape industry. Like, it is just extraordinary when you think back, you know, what was happening in, let's say, Australia not long ago. What we've seen in the last few months in terms of Killarney National Park, we, we are in, at a, a, we're at a pivot point in the context of our ability to arrest the impact of climate breakdown and biodiversity loss. My point is this. We're not going to solve it as individuals, we will, but we will solve it as a collective. And we'll solve it for two reasons, because... If we can actually bring together that, that multilateral framework to deal with challenging issues such as climate change and then leverage that extraordinary capacity we have for knowledge generation, we can be different from those five extinction periods that happened in the past. I, I said this a couple of times, I say it again. Nobody will say that the reptiles or dinosaurs were responsible for their extinction. In fact, they didn't even know it was going to happen. And even if they did, they couldn't do anything about it. Human beings are different, but it is going to be dependent on our capacity to create multilateral frameworks, to have that common purpose to, uh, to make those decisions with regards to uh, addressing climate change. And that one of those key ones is, is the whole drive towards zero carbon. And, and that's really coming in like a, like a train to a station 
I see it in, my, in terms of my own poor environment in terms of maritime. The government's plan for five gigawatt offshore wind by 2030. That's, that's extraordinary in terms of the amount of energy that is. Five gigawatts. I think I, I think I must find out, but I think I saw somewhere where Arda Khrushchev was 0.1 of a gigawatt of power. Yeah. The idea of five gigawatts by 2030 is just mind-boggling. And the potential with 30 gigawatts in the decade that follows is, is just really going to be a game changer for Ireland. So those kind of decisions, while they might seem fantasy, actually are potentially reality if we had the joined up thinking that's necessary. And this is not just, you know, saying that's government's problem. Actually, it's all our problem. And we need to buy into that change management as society, you know, to work with enterprise, to work with government policy, to work with civil society, to bring that change forward, to actually make those things a reality. And, and I'm talking about offshore renewables. I'm talking about offshore wind initially, but in, in our lifetime, offshore wave. I... You know, when I'm talking to you, I'm just kind of going, this man is operating at a different level because you are, it's that pestle, you know, framework, the political, economic, social, technical, uh, technological, environmental, and legislative. You are operating at so many different levels at the one uh, time. So again, in terms of that leadership uh, piece there, you know, how do you, what do you attribute your success in terms of your position? Because you've, you know, transform forms the organization that you're in, but also you're making an impact on society. So you're operating at different levels, but you're creating the change both internally and externally. Uh, so my question is, how do you keep up? How do you do it all? Well, uh, I suppose the, the the third principle that I didn't talk about was um, the ability to to speak and understand the language of others is something mm. that. I, and it's the issue of diversity. And, yeah. and there's two points to diversity from my perspective. The first point is in terms of your outward reach. Like when I grew up and as I grew up in the defense forces, I found for all intents and purposes, a walled garden, a beautiful walled garden that we all enjoyed who served within the military. But society never understood us. They never saw this garden. And, and to, to make it harder, we build high walls around our barracks. So yeah. then for certain, they wouldn't see it. And, um, but if you're going to drive this idea of, of networks, you have to be able to find points of truth and you have to be able to understand each other. So what I, I've said in one of my philosophy has been break down the barrack walls, get people in to see what we do. And likewise, yeah. let's get outside the barrack walls and show people what we do. And I know we probably talked about COVID in a while, but that was a great example of an operation, kind of like a shop window, whereby we were able to get outside and society could see soldiers in the flesh, in vaccination centers, in um, testing centers, delivering the tracing, uh, doing the supporting the, the mandatory quarantine system. Um, but my point was that we, we need to be able to engage with other institutions of state because if we go back to the collaborative side, to be able to collaborate, you need to be able to understand the perspective of others. And, mm. and linked to that side is the ability to speak the language of others. And I don't mean you know, the, the physical language, I mean to understand their area. And one of the first things I remember when I became chief was I brought the, the general staff and the command team down to the central bank. Yeah. And we worked with the governor of the central bank 
and his team. And we had a, an exchange of perspectives. Our risks are different, but the management is the same. And the central yeah. bank had, was, was just coming out at that stage. Oh, it was the biggest crash that this state had ever experienced. And, you know, when you think about it, it's all about managing risk and seeing the indicators of risk and hedging against those to make sure that you've captured them properly. Because when you didn't do it, you were going to be defeated, as we really yeah. were with the crash. That's the same with our business. Our, our business is looking at threats to see where it's coming from and making sure that the way we posture from a defense point of view is that we're going to be able to counter that threat. Because if we're not able to do that, then society, the citizen and government won't forgive us and we really threaten sovereignty. So, so the, the, the piece I'm, I'm, I suppose, you know, articulating here is the need to be able to have an agility in your understanding that brings you out of the silo of your organization and, and gives you that capacity to understand other organizations and to, to actually engage with them. And, and by the way, I say with the humility, because you're not going to understand their business, but if you have willingness to engage with them and talk about their business and at least do some precursor reading about their organizations, you're, you'll have a better point of truth in terms of connecting. And then you can get this reciprocity that I mentioned. The, 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 the point related to that, and I, I didn't expand on it, was the diversity within the organization. Yeah. And that's something that I have put a lot of time into. I've got beaten up a bit on it uh, in terms of you know, people saying that I've a firm grasp of the non-essential. Because I would have led you know, uh, the institutionalizing of diversity and inclusion within the defense forces. And I remember predecessors saying to me, for instance, there are no gays in the defense forces. And I remember, you know, rolling and wondering, Gina Mac, uh, well, actually, I don't know, do I, I don't know, but there must be gays in the organization was my view. Yeah. And uh, I remember making the point, I said, well, even if there's no gays, I bet you in one of our families, there's a gay. And I said, for that person, she or he, we need to ensure that we are inclusive in the organization. It was said, I think that diversity is being invited to the party. Inclusion is being asked to dance. And what we did was we created a diversity and inclusion strategy so that all the communities within the defense were, irrespective of gender, creed, sexual orientation, or, yeah. or age, that they could yeah. feel uh, included in the organization itself. And, and we've driven that uh, within the organization, and it, it's there today. Uh, and allied to that was the whole issue of then looking at how we improve gender balance and empowerment of women within the defense forces. Because we're not at the races with 6.7% of our ratio being women at present. We really yeah. need to move up the dial, not just for political correctness, not just to be a better reflection to the society we defend, protect, and serve, but because it's about capability, we'd be a better organization, more capable, if we've got greater gender balance and empowerment of women within the defense forces. And that's something that uh, certainly I've championed in the last eight years, two years as deputy chief of staff and six years as chief of staff. I'm, I, I will hold my hands up and say, I haven't made the progress I wanted to do, but mm. I think I've laid the foundation for it. And yeah. uh, in many ways, I feel like I've been hitting my head off a huge dam. And as I get ready to retire later this year, and I look at this dam, I see lots of cracks in it. And I think those cracks will you know, be uh, something for my successor 
to harvest in the context of the change required. And I applaud that because uh, I was part of that work with uh, when Captain uh, Deirdre Carberry, which we were both uh, uh, lauding there uh, not so long ago before we started the podcast recording here. And I can see, you know, the the efforts that are made there that have produced uh, some of the results there. So what do you think of the, of the challenges that are remaining there? Or what are the, the glimmer of light in that, that dam that you see? Yeah, well, I, I think that the, um, the the culture shift is there and the um, the reality we, we've got, like Deirdre is a remarkable warrior. I mean, uh, there was, before she left the Defence Force, she's now with Facebook. Uh, Deirdre, her, one of her last missions was in in Congo, in one of the yeah. most dangerous missions in the world. And But, you know, where Deirdre really came to the fore there was actually on the whole... A diplomat side, where she led on the gender equality and empowerment of women in uh, Congo. And it's a great example of another reason why we need gender equality and empowerment of women within our defense forces. Because when you look at challenging environments, challenging missions, um, there's an inexplicable link between interstate and intrastate violence and gender gap, where women are not educated where women are oppressed, where they're not part of the political system, or they're not getting the employment, mm. you would find that there's a, a, a tendency to greater risk in terms of that state. And I've seen it myself in Afghanistan. You see it in many uh, missions where we serve now. And, and so from the point of view of being able to, to address those uh, challenges, you need to have a gender perspective in terms of your soldiers uh, wherever they operate. Uh, in terms of the cause of peace. And, and that's, that's, you know, I suppose coming back to the point in terms of the global stage, while Ireland's role on the Security Council is so important, we have, a, in many ways, leverage that kind of over 60 years and 70,000 individual tours of duty by women and men in our defence forces in some of the most challenging theatres in the world has been a calling card that has given us that credibility to be able to compete for a seat on the Security Council and to, to, uh, to achieve that ahead of states like Canada who competed against us. So the, 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 I suppose in terms of the, the uh, utility of our defence forces beyond what people traditionally would expect us to be doing in terms of defence or security or government services, but to be an arrow in the quiver of government with regards to international good order and, and change, to be actually having that charisma and that, that reputation to be able to be seen as the type of leader that the 180, 190 countries in the world want to see at the top table. Our defence forces played part of a role in actually enabling that seat to be filled by our ambassador, uh, Geraldine Bernason in New York. Speaking of the ambassador, diplomats, I took part in your personal security awareness training, which, you know, make sure you're kept safe and secure and avoid, you know, what to do in a hostage situation, all that, which was fascinating. And when I was on that course, you know, there was a realization and forgive me here if this is controversial. Is is there a bit of it where, you know, the work that's done overseas is somewhat not given the recognition and praise that it deserves in Irish society, or is the defence forces maybe undervalued in terms of this role? Because, you know, you were saying we're one of the top seven most peaceful countries in the world. Is it that we, because we don't feel that heat, we don't give, 
you know, we don't give the recognition that it deserves. Well, I, I suppose it's always a, a communications exercise for me as chief of staff. And um, yeah. I, I don't always hide my life under a bush when I'm trying to make make the case in terms of resourcing. And I, I've never met a chief of defence who couldn't do with more resources. So mm. I, I will always advocate in terms of uh, the resourcing uh, required for the delivery of defence uh, security and government services. But, you know, like, you know, society uh, is, I suppose, has a perspective. There is no doubt, I think, that we need to build that constituency to understand more fundamentally, you know, the, what we have is not, a, is, is not a guarantee. We, we always need to be sensitive to the changing security environment that is around us. Like right now, we have three wars on Europe's border, a full-scale hybrid war in Ukraine following the annexation of Crimea. We have yeah. multiple proxy wars where over, uh, over six, seven million people have been displaced in Syria. Over 600,000 have died in Syria. And we have a stalemate of a, of a, in, in terms of a, a civil war in Libya, uh, which has protracted for a number of years now. And that itself then had become, as you know, the gateway for uh, tens of thousands of uh, irregular uh, migration to occur across the Mediterranean with catastrophic uh, outcomes, with thousands of people dying. In fact, in the last number of years, the Defence Forces um, contributed either directly or indirectly to the rescue of 23,000 people in the Mediterranean, almost 18,000 that we actually brought to safety in our own ships. You know, there's no doubt that thousands of those would have died were it not for the intervention of our defence forces as part of the EU uh, Operation Sophia or the previous uh, bilateral with Italy in terms of Pontus. There, there is no doubt that what our defence forces do day in, day out in terms of the 13 missions in 12 countries where we have nearly 600 uh, women and men today acting as peacekeepers, warriors in the first instance, diplomats in the second instance, making sure that the conditions for a safe, secure environment for vulnerable populations is assured. There's no doubt that we could invest more time in learning about what our citizens in uniform do for our state. And, yeah. you know, I will continue to use opportunities like engagements like this to do that. Yeah. And, and, and I do that. But um, I think, you know, in the same way, as I said, we need to understand the perspective of, of others. I would ask that society understands the perspective of its defense forces and the sacrifice of its women and men, the loyalty, dedication and commitment of the sailors, the soldiers, the airmen and women who serve this state day in, day out and have done so for almost 100 years now, who are already the, 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 the forebears of, of men and women like your grandfather, who actually yeah. were part of that arrangement, the volunteers that actually assured our freedom and our sovereignty back in the War of Independence in places like Tormacady, in Kilmina, in Skirda and other places in, in, with the West Mayor Brigades, but the same throughout the country. Their, their, their sacrifice was the trigger for what we have today. And, you know, there's a, there's a very, I suppose I use it every now, Emperor Morris, the Byzantine emperor said, the nation that forgets its defenders will itself 
be forgotten. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's, it's funny you were talking about, you know, those insights to society. The reason I was really interested in talking to you is because I was telling you before my childhood friend, uh, Patrick Walsh, gave me some insights in terms of here's his career in the, in the Navy and some things I, I wouldn't know understood or been privy to, you know, and it's the same with Captain Jared Carberry, you know, when I was in the United Nations training school, giving me those insights. And then, you know, we we're talking about influence and we we're talking about gender balance then. What do you think the role of uh, Major General Maureen O'Brien then is in terms of that gender balance piece, but also Ireland's influence on a world stage? Well, she is the first um, senior general in UN headquarters who is a woman. You can't see, you can't be. You can yeah. not be, so you can be. And so there's a message for us in terms of society here in Ireland. And, you know, when I look at the issue as to why we don't have more women in the defence forces, and I put my hands up and say, you know, it's this is your problem. You, you haven't moved at, at the rate that you could have, and, I, and I, I'll take the hit for that. But there's a bigger issue there. It's a societal issue, William. And there's a very interesting study done by Ballon College um, Secondary School that won the BT Young Scientist Award in 2019. And they found that gender stereotyping of five to seven-year-old girls was being shaped by their five to seven-year-old boy colleagues. Right. And while the five to seven year old boys could do all they wanted to do, they could, you know, play soldiers or, you know, get involved in STEM and science, technology, engineering, and maths, girls were stereotypically driven down particular paths, which mm. were not to the same degree in terms of embracing the likes of science, technology, yeah. and maths, or as I say, also military. So having champions and advocates like Maureen O'Brien in such a senior position will help yeah. break that mindset. But there is also other people involved in this. The, you know, the, I, I think career counsellors have a role. Parents have a role. Parents can be gatekeepers in terms of preventing their daughters in terms of joining organisations like our Defence Forces. And, and so I make that appeal to those gatekeepers. Back to Maureen O'Brien and back to that strategic point I made earlier on with regards to the drivers of interstate and intrastate violence. I'm around long enough to to hear the actual the narrative around why we need to keep by some, by the way, not me, but by some who says, oh, we need to maintain the, the warrior masculinity of the military because the stuff we do is is in that side. Actually, you know what? There is a lot that we do that requires that 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 muscle and, and requires that um uh, I suppose warrior type skill, but women warriors are just as effective in 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 many areas. And one of the things I was um, delighted to see Talia Britton, who is a young yeah. female diver in the Navy who recently qualified on the Naval Service Diving Program, shows that you know uh, you don't have to be uh, built like uh, an Arnold Schwarzenegger to be really really. Able, you need that persistence and that resilience to actually get on with it, and and it's not just all about muscle. It's about the diversity. It's about the mix, and it's about the sophistication that a, a more inclusive society within the military brings. Yeah, and uh, speaking of societal challenges, then then we had, you know, uh, I suppose of of late COVID, 
and cyber attacks and, you know, all these different things. And you were talking about the Defence Forces playing a crucial role in terms of that. And many people that I've spoken to recently have talked about vaccination centres just saying how well they are run. And the, the military have played a huge part in that. Well, I think, you know, ever since, you know, we, we all got the indications back last January, 12 months, February, 12 months, that things were not good in terms of the move of this uh, infection initially and then pandemic subsequently westwards. And, um, you know, we've all been wondering what was our part and what was our role. And I remember uh, at a, a national security meeting, meeting with Paul Reid and, um, you know, being tasked by government to give priority call to Paul Reid. And that priority call meant what every resource I could make available to him to make available. And we've done just that. And, uh, you know, one of the first, you know, deployments we did was our young cadets from the cadet school to uh, allocate them as contact tracers. And yeah. then we subsequently then deployed a number of our ships in as hubs for the actual the testing, contact testing. And you might recall that we had a ship in South, Sir John Rogerson's Key here in Dublin, one in Galway, and we had one in Cork. Um, and, and then we moved on from that. We trained up a whole raft of uh, drivers because one of the vulnerabilities at the early stages was what if our gas network collapses and we can't get oxygen to hospitals fast enough? Uh, and so we had a, 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 a whole cohort of drivers trained up in terms of transportation of oxygen. In, 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 so that we could uh, support our HSE colleagues in that regard. And then on top of that, then the movement of, I think it was in the region of nearly 4,000 tonnes uh, from 259 flights of PPE from uh, primarily from China to distribution points and then out towards uh, hubs throughout the state so that our health workers would have the PPE whether it be on the front line or in hospitals and our nursing homes uh, and elsewhere, wherever it was required. And that was all uh, marshaled by the Defence Forces. And I have to say that um, for me, it's been a privilege to work with the likes of Paul Reid. Uh, I, I don't know where he gets the time from, but I, I, I would call, ring Paul every few days. And he has he yet not to be back to me within five or ten minutes when I, I call him. If he doesn't answer the call him immediately, wow. it's just extraordinary. But that's the, the same that has been throughout with the not just the HSE, but the National Ambulance Service, the huge cohort of volunteers that have come forward now in the recent months as we began to support the HSE in terms of the, the mass vaccination centres. Now, we're primarily delivering support in terms of governance of those centres, but I, I don't for a moment want us to, to over-stress uh, our um, role. We are part of a team of, of if you like, a, a public sector response towards this pandemic. And I have, I have found no part of government that hasn't risen to the challenge, including uh, parts of uh, civil society in terms of the volunteer institutions who've come there in their numbers from the individual to small groupings. And, and in that regard, like I, I just have to remark our veterans within the Defence Forces who at day one talked off in terms of being there to support us in terms of our response for COVID. Our veterans organizations in terms of ONE, the Organization of National Ex-Servicemen, who, by the way, are fundraising through ONE, the Future Appeal, and the uh, Jadaville Challenge at present, that's coming up in the next uh, couple of weeks. Uh, I, 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 Ionva, Irish UN Volunteer Association, 
and also ARCO, the Association for Retired Commissioned Officers. They all have been really stalwart institutions supporting through the NGO community in terms of the response to COVID. Uh, so wherever it has been, and you know, really coming to the point now, even in the recent cyber attack, whereby we have uh, today now, I think we have six cyber incident response teams deployed throughout various hospitals throughout the state, supporting the AHSE as we endeavor to get their systems back up and running. We deployed a, a strategic team in to help with the campaign planning of pulling this together at the most strategic level, uh, working with the HSE, and that work was was of great value to the chief technical officer in the HSE and his team. So these are all, if you like, reasons why you actually invest in your defence forces, why you pay that premium to have an insurance policy that is underwritten by defence, because that gives the state the resilience to absorb that shock like a pandemic and then to recover and move forward in a, in a, in a civil manner uh, to bring normalization. And what we, and I say in the Defence Forces, we are moving towards a better normal, not a new normal, a better normal, because the learning that's coming out of this has to be leveraged with regards to trying to land us in a spot that is better than where we were, rather than the same as where we were. And... There's lots of things that we've covered there. And the, the thing that keeps coming back to me is how do you do it all? Like that intense pressure on the sp- in the spotlight then in terms of resilience or mental toughness. Is there advice then you could maybe give to other leaders that may be floundering right now in terms of trying to be collaborative and trying to trust others in terms of their expertise? And you talked about your different principles there. What, what are your kind of nuggets of, of self-care or mental toughness that you could offer our listeners? Well, I, I think, um, you know, people sometimes ask me what keeps you awake at night. And, you know, one of the, the, the most dangerous missions keep me awake or give me cause for concern. And when I think about at the moment, we have our Army Ranger Wing, Special Operations Forces, Upper Northern Mali, the most dangerous UN mission in the world. Mm. And uh, it is extraordinary. There's been two, two coups in Mali, two military coups in Mali in, in, in the past 12 months. They're operating in an area near the tri-border area between Burkina, Burkina Faso, Niger, and Mali itself. Um, and, and, but, you know, I have a confidence in their training and their force protection and their warrior skills, they are real warriors who are actually on the front line in one of the most inhospitable, inhospitable environments in the world. And yet they're delivering security to the nomadic communities, to the Dogan, the Fulani, the tribal communities that are in that region. And, you know, you'd naturally say, I, I worry about that. But you know what, actually, you know, I worry about most is the helplessness of having to deal with a suicide. And I, I, it's one of the most difficult things of any leader is to actually have to deal with those, uh, they're, they're not regular events, the irregularity of it. But it makes me come back to the point about being able to talk about those matters, not mm-hmm. when you have a tragedy like that, but rather when you don't have a tragedy about it. And to talk about the issue of the impact of stress, 
and to, to normalize the reality that everybody feels stress from time to time and to actually be sensitive to the people you're dealing with. You don't know what stress they're under. So you must mm. always be, have an openness to, have, uh, to be able to listen and, and to actually open portals and open uh, dialogues in a manner whereby people can talk about uh, issues that are impacting on them, not out of a, a, a matter of abnormality, but a matter of normality. Because we're living at a time, I think, whereby the levels of stress are extraordinary. Many of those levels are triggered by things like our access to social media. This constant barrage or this almost blizzard of information coming in from all sources. And it impacts on our senses to a degree whereby sometimes we can't see the wood from the trees. And this brings its own pressure and puts us into a cycle, which can be quite dangerous. So you have to build, um, from a personal point of view, your own resilience to deal with those uh, that environment. And you, you mentioned earlier on, I'm a daily runner. I am a daily runner, and that's exactly why I'm a daily runner. I, I'm out every morning after 7.15 or so, and I run my four miles or whatever it is, and it sets me up for the day. But I, I, I do take time out during the day then to have a period of maybe 10 or 15 minutes where I just try and sit and breathe and stop thinking, and people call it mindfulness. Eckhart Tolle calls this it's not mindfulness, it's actually mind emptiness. You, know, you just want mm. to be sure you're not. But, but critical to that is having an understanding that uh, don't be selfish about it. You know, be, 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 be caring. Be caring for your work colleague, for your family members. And, you know, always think of that pause to nourish. Uh, and, and that's back to your own support mechanism, back to no man is an island entire to itself each is a part of the continent a piece of the main if a cod be watched away Europe is the less we are we are so interdependent so therefore don't be don't feel that it's it's conceding power to depend on others and to be open with regards to your vulnerability everybody's the same so therefore you know be be be, be prepared to have that vulnerability with those around you and, and equally important, be prepared to, to look for that vulnerability in those you work with, whether they're your superiors or your subordinates or your peers, because that's the way you get that trigger for that conversation moment that might just arrest a negative thought in somebody else's mind that could lead to that, that impossible piece that I, 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 I hate having to deal with, is that, that suicide, because it's such, such a waste. And, you know, and I want to applaud you for encouraging people to lean into that, be comfortable being vulnerable, you know, and that's been a common theme on the podcast since it started. And, uh, you know, thank you for saying that. So we're coming to the end of the, the podcast here. Um, and I would like to give you an opportunity then to, for our listeners then, to maybe offer some kind of key takeaways. Yeah, I, I suppose one of the... Um, pieces is is back to the issue of of ego and and you know the humility that goes with authority and the importance of, of that that you um are sensitive to that point you know people have this expectation that being a leader is all about authority and about shouting orders and 
actually, you know, achieving things in this world is about others doing things together. And, you know, something we often forget is actually crediting, and the attaboy, I call it, you know, the well done to whoever it is who's doing his or her best to actually deliver something. And, and one of the ways that we've institutionalized that within the defense forces in the past couple of years has been our values in actions, in action champions, our moral courage, physical courage, respect, integrity, loyalty, and selflessness. And every year we ask everybody to look around and say, who best epitomizes the values, the individual values? And every year we have six recipients who are picked by their peers and they receive those awards. And to, to finish on the selflessness one, the, one of the last recipients uh, was a, a girl called um, Jennifer, Jenny O'Connor. She reward, received a reward for selflessness. And I remember when I phoned her, she started crying and she said, surely somebody deserves this more than me. And that's exactly it, full circle, in terms of somebody who was recognized for their selfless service to the state, and yet they would think that somebody else deserves more than them. That's real humility. Thank you so much for sharing those insights. This has been a fascinating uh, listen for me. Mark, thank you so much for coming on to the Workplace Podcast. Thanks very much, William. Look forward to catching up in Tormacadie. Me too. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And I'll bring my grandfather's uh, medal with me. Okay, thank yeah. you. Listen, thanks, William. See you then. That's it for this episode of the Workplace Podcast. My special thanks to this week's guest for a wonderful discussion. If you want to get in contact with a podcast about a workplace topic or a particular challenge that you're facing, contact me via Twitter at Different Paths. You can also connect with me on LinkedIn, William Corless, C-O-R-L-E-S-S, or go to my website, www.yellowwood.ie. Yellowwood, your external learning and development partner, provider executive coaching, facilitation and training. Take a different path to success with your career, leadership, team and organization.